Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Girl, real talk. This whole it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. I mean, I think the end of these things are really difficult to pinpoint. You know, there's a way in which when you get a diagnosis, you can say like, this was the day that a doctor told me I had cancer. And when you're emerging from that experience, if you're lucky enough to be someone who gets to emerge from that experience, things are a lot blurrier. The day I got my bone marrow transplant, and then there was a hundred day mark after that when I found out if the preliminary test showed that it worked. And then there was the day that I found out I had to do another two years of maintenance chemo. And so I think that was what made the process of recovery feel not just kind of amorphous, but really difficult to situate myself within and difficult to kind of quantify the progress or the healing that I was doing. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. So this week we're doing something new. For the first time, we are going to re-air an episode. It's an episode that we recorded last spring 
right before the pandemic. It's actually one of the last interviews we got to do in person. And it's with the writer Suleika Jawad, who is the author of the new book, Between Two Kingdoms, a memoir of a life interrupted, which came out yesterday, which is why we're re-airing it. Between Two Kingdoms is uh, the story of Suleika's diagnosis at age 23 with a, an aggressive form of leukemia. She was told she had a 35% chance of survival and underwent years of harrowing treatment. And after that, after she was, against the odds, cancer-free, um, she began years of a different kind of struggle of trying to figure out who she was after this experience and how to return to what Susan Sontag, who she quotes, called the kingdom of the well. That period of loss and confusion was what she came to talk about last spring when she was still revising the book. And I'm so excited to air it again today now that uh, the book and her whole story is out and in the world. I hope you enjoy it. How do you introduce yourself? I haven't had to introduce myself. I'm Suleika Jawad, and I'm a writer. I think the usual moment that people speak to or write to in an illness narrative is the moment of diagnosis. And I feel like it's often described as like a bifurcation and there's a life before a diagnosis, whether it's cancer or something else, and the life that comes after. And I think that feels true for me, although the beginning of my illness felt less like a single moment of bifurcation than a series of small fractures as I started to kind of get sicker and sicker. I think the bigger moment for me came after the medical part of that experience came to an end. And I got into the sort of survivorship recovery phase of my illness experience because I think partially I never expected to survive my leukemia. And so when I did, I had this strange feeling of deja vu where I couldn't obviously return to the birth, the person I'd been pre-illness or the life I'd had then, nor did I necessarily want to. But at the same time, I didn't know who I was beyond just being a cancer patient. And so I had this feeling of not quite knowing where I fit and not quite knowing how to kind of find my place among the living again. So I was diagnosed when I was 22 with leukemia after a couple of months of uh, having different symptoms and receiving different diagnoses or misdiagnoses. And by the time I finished my last round of chemotherapy and was kind of 
declared officially cancer-free, it had been three and a half years. When you've recently graduated from college, for a lot of us, we're in this in-between space where we're not necessarily fully formed responsible adults, but we're also not kids anymore. And so I think even without the illness factor, when I graduated from college, I was very much in the typical space of figuring out what it was I wanted to do and how I wanted to do that. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't, didn't have a family of my own yet. I was working an entry level job as a paralegal, which was not my dream job, but felt like a good job for the time being. That's all to say that when I got my diagnosis and um, by the time I was done with treatment, I didn't feel like I had a reference point for, or, or a life I could return to necessarily. I didn't have a career awaiting me or a person that I'd been that felt well-established. And so, yeah, in some ways it felt like I was back in the in-between place I'd been in as a 22-year-old who was kind of trying to figure out the same questions, uh, except that there was a lot more gravitas after this whole thing. And I'm probably being ungenerous and a little too harsh, but I felt like I was like a typical, like self-involved 22-year-old sort of shithead who <laughs> um, was probably not in my most anchored place and was self-destructive in ways that especially after having been through, you know, years of like grueling uh, life-threatening treatments uh, felt wasteful and silly. But I think, you know, now when I look back on the person that I was, I can see these seeds that were planted then that I feel like I, I, I feel a greater sense of connection to that person now and see in some ways that maybe there was less of a before and after kind of thing that happened with my diagnosis than maybe I realized then. And that, you know, at 22, I very much wanted to be doing the same things I'm doing now, uh, even if they took a slightly different trajectory. And I was starting to do those things, even if I hadn't quite figured out what they looked like. I mean, I think the end of these things are really difficult to pinpoint. But the day, I think for me, where I felt that kind of clear before and after um, was the day that I was released from the hospital. Um, I just finished chemotherapy and been hospitalized for some complications. Um, and it also coincided with the day that my partner at the time moved out of the apartment that we shared. And I remember this moment when I got back to my apartment and I had all of my belongings in this plastic bag that was labeled uh, and said patient things, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. And I walked into this apartment and it was quiet. And I wandered around the apartment and kind of inspected the closets and the dresser drawers uh, that were empty and had this moment of 
feeling like something had ended and something new was beginning, except that it wasn't necessarily the triumphant sort of celebratory, I'm done with this illness experience uh, that I necessarily expected or had been looking forward to. It was a little more complicated. I didn't have cancer anymore, but at the same time, I was taking stock for the first time the collateral damage that it had left, not just in my body, but in my life. And it was confusing and sort of difficult to hold both of those things at the same time. Uh, Because on the one hand, you're expected to feel grateful and excited and triumphant. And in some ways I did. But on the other, I think as I kind of emerged from that survival mode that I'd been in, I was able to kind of also feel for the first time what it was that this experience had meant and what it had cost me. I think when you receive a life-threatening diagnosis, the goal becomes not just ongoingness, but survival. And for me, you know, during the time I was in treatment, that was that was really the only thing that mattered was figuring out how to stay alive and hopefully to get to a point where I could be cured of this disease. But I'm not sure that I ever considered what it would mean to get to that point and what it would look like after. And so when I was in this sort of survival mode of like getting myself to chemotherapy and figuring out how to just kind of make it to whatever that next milestone or next biopsy or next test or whatever it was, there wasn't a lot of space for me to hold the emotional, social, or like professional impact of uh, this illness because I had to prioritize. I had, you know, three hours a day where I had the energy to do things and anything that wasn't absolutely important was just not something I could think about or something I could deal with. And so I think when I started to emerge from that experience and I started to kind of metabolize some of these experiences that had happened and to process them, I began to grieve a lot of different things. I grieved in some ways these, you know, years in my early 20s that should have been, you know, fun exploratory years that I didn't get to have. I grieved the loss of my fertility, um, which happened during treatment, but that I hadn't fully been in a place to even think about what that meant because it didn't even seem likely that there would be a time when I might be able to consider something like motherhood. I grieved, uh, the impact that it had on my relationships. I grieved like a sense of um, innocence in some ways that I think gets lost when your worst case scenario comes to fruition and you realize that, you know, tragic things can and do happen. And I also grieved, you know, the friends that I'd made during my time in treatment who hadn't survived. So, you know, but in some ways, should have 
felt like a beginning, felt like a more complicated reflective period that I hadn't necessarily expected. And I think when you're in a life or death situation, there is a kind of adrenaline that kicks in for a reason, right? Because you need that in order to kind of get through some of these things that are happening. But when you're no longer in that life or death situation and the adrenaline goes away, there's a sort of spiritual exhaustion that can descend as you start to actually allow yourself to feel even just on a bodily level how tired you are. I, in some ways, was the most prolific and productive that I've ever been when I was at my sickest because I felt that time was very limited in a way that was very motivating for me. And then when you're kind of handed this chunk of unexpected time, it can be difficult to know what to do with it. And it can actually feel kind of frightening and paralyzing, you know, up until that point, I don't know that I'd been able to make plans further out than maybe a couple of weeks. And so to try to reimagine my relationship to time and to actually plan ahead and to push myself to, you know, come up with projects like a book that would likely take more than three months to do felt really scary because I didn't know how to think long-term anymore. Thinking long-term felt like a risky investment that might end in heartbreak if I were to get sick again. So in this time, you're in your apartment and you're walking around your apartment with some new empty drawers, figuring out a new relationship with time. What did you do like with, with your time in that period? Like how, how long do you feel like this period, this like nadir that you're describing, how long did it last? And what were you, what did you do? What were you doing? You know, there's that great line from Susan Sontag's illness as metaphor, where she describes how everyone has these dual citizenship in the kingdom of the sick and the well. And I think up until that point, I thought that once I was sort of released from my cancer treatment, I would go back to being a well person. So the thing that I did when I finished treatment was trying to kind of live up to that expectation. And I'm not quite sure where the expectation came from, but I think in like a lot of illness narratives, especially cancer narratives, whether Hollywood movies or TV shows or books, you know, the third act ends with you being cured if you're lucky and then returning to your life and not just returning to your life, but like returning to your life all the more sort of grateful and grounded and enlightened for this traumatic thing that you've been through. And it sounds so absurd, right? But I think I did feel this pressure. And, you know, people would say to me, like, congratulations on being done with treatment. And you must be so excited for what you're going to do next. Or like, what, what's your next project? Or And so in those 
early weeks and months, I tried to live out this narrative of this sort of like a heroic survivor's journey that I thought I should be living. So I bought a juicer off of Craigslist (laughs) (laughs) and forced myself to drink these gag-inducing green drinks that I thought might, you know, help with my energy levels. I tried to go to a yoga class and I think I probably went two or three times and then never went again because I felt so physically awful. I signed up for a marathon with my friend Kristen, who I met in cancer treatment, and we went to two of the training sessions. And then I ended up back in the emergency room because I was in no place to be running or to pushing my, right? So I was just, you know, kind of blindly trying to uh, sort of press myself back into the world and into what I imagined like a normal 26-year-old girl should be doing. I went out dancing. I, you know, it wasn't, but I think once I started to kind of bump up against the limitations of this narrative and to realize that that just wasn't where I was at and um, where I was going to be anytime soon, I felt a real sense of being unmoored um, and not being quite sure where I fit. Uh, Because the truth was, I wasn't a normal 26-year-old girl and I couldn't do what my healthy friends were doing. But at the same time, I wasn't a sick person anymore. And so I think for about a year, I didn't quite know how to kind of make a home um, within that sort of wilderness that lies between the kingdoms of the sick and the well. And it was tricky, you know, on the one hand, I didn't have leukemia anymore. And yet I was still on disability because I was constantly getting hospitalized for different infections and things because of my compromised immune system. I was presumably well enough to be working. And yet up until that point, my career had been writing this column that was about illness. And so I didn't quite know what my next project would be. It was just this really strange and difficult time of trying to figure out where I fit and what was realistic for me, given my limitations without knowing how long I would have these limitations for. Was there a moment when you felt like you were getting the hang of it or where you felt like you started to transition out of that confusing nether space? I don't think there was a moment where I started to get the hang of things. (laughs) Um, There was a series of moments where I realized I couldn't continue on the way. There was a series of moments where I realized that I, that my way of attempting to move through the world were no longer working. I think there was, so, you know, when I sort of got over this delusion that I could run marathons or go dancing or do whatever. Um, I had a really difficult period where I was really struggling and feeling really down. And at the same time, feeling really frustrated with myself for feeling down and feeling this sense of I've been through so much. I'm so lucky 
to be alive. I shouldn't feel this way. I endured these things so that I could not only be alive, but so that I could have a good life and hopefully a meaningful and fulfilling life. And so I think I got to this point where I realized that I not only needed some kind of drastic change, but that I needed to give myself this space to actually figure out who I was separately from either the person I'd been or these weird sort of assumptions and expectations that I had of what recovery would look like. And so the first part of that for me was wanting to figure out how to kind of be on my own. And I ended up taking the train up to Vermont where my family has this little cabin and kind of putting myself in a solitude boot camp. Because at that point, I still didn't feel fully safe in my body. And I was so used to having caregivers and people around me that I really wanted to figure out how to be independent and how to feel comfortable within that solitude. And then the next thing that I decided that I was going to do once I felt like I was okay with being on my own was that I was going to take a trip by myself uh, and kind of carve out a period of time where I could kind of get away from this city and give myself the space to explore and to figure out not just what my next steps were going to be, but like who this new person was. I was going to ask how you feel like this affected your desire to write. Yeah. So when I graduated from college, I was very much hoping to be a reporter or to do some kind of long form journalism. And even though I'd always written in the first person in the context of journals, it hadn't really ever occurred to me to write in the first person in any other context. When I got sick, I wasn't well enough to go out and about in the world and report on other things. Um, I was really limited. I was in isolation in a hospital room for uh, about eight months of that first year. I called it the bubble. Uh, My hospital room, I wasn't allowed to leave and anyone who entered had to wear a face mask and a surgical gown. And probably because I was so limited, began to take these notes on the things that were happening within my bubble and found myself not just gravitating towards the first person in my own writing, but in my reading too. Uh, And I started to kind of seek out more narrative nonfiction and illness memoirs that could offer some sort of insight or even kind of companionship uh, within this experience that I was having. Without really meaning to, I started to do a very different kind of reporting than the reporting I'd imagined myself doing pre-diagnosis. And I started reporting on this experience that I was having. So my first ever byline, my first time being published was writing this column about my illness experience. And I felt 
unbelievably psyched, uh, not just <laughs> to even be published, but to have the opportunity um, to make something of like this pretty awful experience uh, that I found myself in. And it felt really exhilarating to have a job to do beyond just being a patient. Um, and so I kind of tried to reimagine my bubble, my hospital room as a sort of makeshift office. And it became this thing that I was able to kind of throw what energy I had into that felt really not just creatively invigorating, um, but from a human perspective, really sort of unexpectedly beautiful. Um, even though I couldn't leave my hospital room, I suddenly had this community of people that I was able to access um, through my writing and online uh, uh, who were going through similar experiences, uh, who hadn't necessarily been sick, but who understood what it meant and what it was like to have their own lives interrupted in different contexts. So that was, yeah, that was my first job. But I think, and I'm sure maybe you've had this experience with your, when you land your first gig, right? The instinct or like when you, yeah, when you're able to place your first story or you get what feels like your first big break, I think the instinct and the expectation can be to keep doing that because it's working. The interesting thing with this is because of the nature of the subject, uh, the hope was always that I would one day stop writing about this specific topic. But I think, yeah, I think when I, you know, came out of this experience, I wanted to write about something different. Uh, but the truth was that I was still living it. Um, and I was still interrogating these questions. I remember I had this conversation with Cheryl Strade, uh, where I said to her, whatever I do next, um, I know I want to write a book. Um, and I know that I don't want it to be about illness. And she said to me, the funny thing about that is that you will probably write a book that's about illness. And she said that when she sat down to write wild, uh, the thing she kept saying to everyone is, I don't want to write about my dead mother. And of course, the book ended up being about grief. And I think the point of that is that like we write about the things that we think about and that we want to unpack. And there's no sort of time limit that you can put on that. And uh, the book I ended up writing wasn't necessarily similar to the columns, but it was very much about that in-between place that I found myself in and that experience of re-entry. Um, but I spent about a good year trying not to write about that and in the process writing nothing at all. <laughs> the question I was going to ask is whether you eventually wrote your way out of that experience or if the experience ended and then you wrote about it? I'm always someone who has to not just write my way out of an experience, but write my way into it, um, which is to say that I don't 
quite think that I even understood what experience I was having until I tried to write about it. I think that it wasn't until I started working on what would end up being my first book that I even really saw that I was mired in this kind of liminal space um, and this limbo. And it wasn't until I got to the end of the book that I realized just how lost I'd been during that year. I have a really hard time figuring out not only what it is I want to say, but what it is I'm thinking until I put it into words. I relate to that so, so much. And I wonder, did you then, like, was it that you came to the end of having written the book and thought, oh my God, now it's behind me. Like now I both understand what I went through and I can understand it now because I realize I'm not, I'm not in it anymore. Or did the act of writing it ignite a process of having to kind of reprocess it? When I sit down to write, my first drafts are always completely filled with lies. And they're often like the aspirational stories or versions of the events that I wish were true. And so I've kind of come to accept that as part of my process when I'm writing in the first person. I write like the thing that I want to believe is true. And then in doing so very quickly realize what actually is happening. And so I feel like I, yeah, that, you know, that process of self-interrogation is what's always really excited me about memoir. Um, But I've also, um, you know, in the context of this book, found it interesting to kind of bring in some of the elements of reporting. So I did a lot of interviews, not just with the people who lived some of these events with me. But for example, I had my parents interview me. And so listening back to some of those tapes was also really interesting because I think sometimes we more, you know, we reveal more than maybe we realize in the moment when we're just kind of speaking to someone. And so, yeah, I, I feel like I had a kind of reverse engineering process with this book of just like stripping away layers until I kind of got to what, to what felt true. I mean, it's difficult because like when I started writing the book, I was so fresh, uh, not just from the cancer experience, but I was still very much recovering. And I had this moment where I was nearing sort of the midpoint and was about a year or two out of treatment, um, where I got hospitalized for the flu. And I hadn't gotten sick like that in a long time. Um, And I think for me, it was this moment where I realized like there isn't going to be this like mythic moment where I arrived to a place where I like actually feel that my recovery process is over. In some ways, this is going to be ongoing. And I think that helped me crystallize in the writing that I couldn't you know, wait for a moment or or that there wasn't going to be a moment. There wasn't going to be a scene that maybe sort of the non-ending was the ending. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. 
Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.